Well, hello. Good morning, Midtown Church. Good to see you guys enjoying each other's company. It is a joy to worship together today, worship our awesome God, hear from God's Word and sing His praises over one another. I trust that God will encourage you and move in your heart today and, and work through you to encourage others as you greet one another as you just have and as we sing God's praises over each other. I do see some new faces, so if you're visiting today, I'll introduce myself. My name's Justin. I serve as the associate pastor here at Midtown, and we're just so glad that you're here. It's one of our aims to be a church that welcomes everyone, no matter where they're at in their spiritual journey, and so really glad that you're here. And if I'm detecting right, I think I see uh, some parents that are in the crowd, maybe celebrating graduation, so congrats to the grads, and even greater congrats to the parents who have your kids off your payroll right now. So good for you. Good for you. You guys deserve it. Uh, this morning, we're going to continue in our series through the Upper Room Discourse. If you remember, this is the last words that Jesus spoke to his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. You find them in John's chapter 13 through 17. And today is going to be fun because we're going to actually look at the very last words that Jesus speaks because chapter 17 is actually just a prayer. And so then we see what Jesus prays, but these are the very last words that Jesus is going to say before he goes to the garden to pray. One's kind of a pretty famous verse that you might have heard before, and so I'm really looking forward to getting uh, to do this together. And if you can now, Aiden's going to read our scripture. If you guys don't mind standing in honor of God's word, uh, Aiden's going to read our passage. All right, this is John 16, 28 through 33. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciples said, now you're speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need, any, need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Do you now believe? Jesus replied. A time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all can grab a seat. Thanks, Aiden. Well, let me start you with a heavy question this morning. Have you ever experienced a crisis of faith? Have you ever experienced a crisis of faith, like a time, a circumstance, a, a moment, an occasion that really had you make you question everything that you believed? Maybe to go back and decide if you really believed it again, or has your faith ever been tested like that? I'm hoping that God will bring something to mind because I'm going to argue today that we're all going to face this, and if you haven't yet, it's on its way that you're going to face a crisis of faith. Let me give you some ideas of where some of these typically come for people. Maybe it's like the death of a dream, or had a death of a dream, or maybe a really long extended season of what felt like just unanswered prayers, like you didn't know if God was real or if he was there. Or maybe it's after like an accident or an injury, some, something like that that's happened to you. Maybe it's a time of super big uh, financial stress where you just couldn't make ends meet and you wonder why God wasn't providing, or maybe it was through your beliefs being challenged by a professor, or maybe a classmate made you rethink what you would believe, or maybe it was after a miscarriage, or maybe it was after a broken hearted, after a relationship ended, or even after divorce, or maybe it was actually challenged by witnessing hypocrisy in the church or seeing the fall of a spiritual leader that caused you to have a crisis of faith, or maybe seeing a church split, or maybe it's just a sudden or premature death of someone that you know and that you love. Such times will come. Your faith, as strong as you think it is right now, there will be a time when it will be challenged. And it's not really useful to try to compare your story with someone else's stories for whatever it is for you. It's a crisis of faith for you, and it does no good to compare and think that others may have had it worse. 
we're all going to have crisis of faith in multiple different ways. And could someone get Aaron? Aaron's outside of the door. This is why we keep this little app going for us. Thanks, Josh. Normally, Allison and Cliff are here for that, but they're out of town this weekend. I know for me, um, my first, I would consider like my big crisis of faith was back about 1999 and 2000. And a culmination of circumstances, I've shared with you guys before that like my biggest fear in life is just to, is being alone. Like I just have a real fear of being alone. And in that, that period of time, um, I really wanted to be married and I was struggling with my singleness. And uh, I was just like really frustrated because I kept asking a lot of girls out and they kept breaking up with me. I mean, I was trying, it wasn't for lack of effort. There was no passivity on my part, I was trying. But it never seemed to work out for me. And it always ended with a broken heart. And at the same time, a lot of my friends were getting married and things seemed to work out for them. And so I just felt myself like a really lonely place and I honestly started just questioning the goodness of God. And that was a crisis of faith. Like, could I really believe that God was good in the midst of that? I was tired. It was the, always the groomsman and never the groom. See, guys can say that too. It can happen to us too. That's, that's how it felt. And that might seem trivial, but I bet for some of you, it's not. And it doesn't matter what, if that's my story. You've got a different story, and there's ways that your faith is going to be challenged in different ways or already has and will be in the future. It's not minor to you when you're the one experiencing it. So what about you? Could God bring something to mind? Can you look back at a time? I want you to kind of let that just bubble up in your heart as we look at this passage, because one of the things I love about this passage is Jesus promised that times like these would come. Now, I won't belabor the context before we get into the very first verse that we'll read today because we've talked about it so many times before, but throughout the upper room discourse, the disciples are constantly asking questions. They're so confused. They're, mis they're misunderstanding Jesus and asking him tons of questions. And the conversation kind of goes back and forth and back and forth. They're very confused. So that's the state that they're at. When Jesus here, remember, these are his last words because chapter 17, he's just going to pray and then he's going to be betrayed. So his last words to his disciples, he's trying to make it as expressly clear, as easy as he can, and he starts with verse 28. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciple says, now you're speaking clearly without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things, that you don't, do, not, do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. That makes us believe that you came from God. Jesus, Jesus has been telling him so many things over the course of this night, but he kind of sums it down to this one statement. Look, guys, I came from the Father to the world, and now I'm leaving the world to go to the Father. Jesus claiming to be divine, claiming that he actually came from God and he was going to accomplish a purpose, and the purpose was nearing its end. He was going to be back with the Father, which he talked extensively about earlier in the conversation in John chapter 14. But he's trying to make it really clear to them, and you see that they kind of get it. Remember, they've been asking him questions throughout the entire night, every time. Now they're saying, well, now we don't even need to ask you any questions. Like, we believe. They're like, okay, we get it. Well, they got part of it. Uh, they got that he was sent from God. I think that they really believe that. And they make this profession like, we believe that you were sent from God. Now, what they had a lot of misunderstanding about was what he was sent, going to do that night. And if you had to go back two Sundays ago when we talked about when Jesus said he had sent a spirit, that his spirit would help reveal what Jesus' death and resurrection was gonna be about. And so that part of his mission, they didn't quite get until the resurrected Jesus reveals it to them. In addition to the Holy Spirit that they receive makes clear what this mission was. But at least here, at least here, the very thing that they could believe was, yes, we believe that you were sent from God. They believed it. But upon their confession, Jesus tells them that their belief is going to be challenged. Do you believe, Jesus replied? The time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered, each of you to your own home. 
you will leave me alone, yet I'm not alone, for my Father is with me. Now, this has kind of been another one of those recurring themes throughout the, the upper room discourse. Because if you remember back in chapter 13, when they just started getting together, Jesus starts to wash their feet. He talks to them about how they need to love one another. But then he says, one of you is going to betray me. They all start questioning, like, who is it? And Peter says, I'd never do it. He says, well, you're going to deny me. You're going to face persecution, he continues to say throughout this conversation they have. And now here, at the very, very end, some of his last words, he tells them that you're going to betray me. You're all going to scatter to your own places. Knowing the Old Testament full well, I believe that Jesus here was probably thinking about uh, the prophet Zechariah, when the prophet Zechariah said this, awake sword against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus knew that this was about to happen as much as they made their profession of faith. We believe, we get it, you came from God, we believe it. Well, you're about to have a crisis of faith here shortly and you're all gonna get scattered. Y'all know uh, that Brenda and I actually had the privilege of going to Israel um, the last October. Super fun. And one of the neatest things now is I can read these scriptures and actually picture the place where it, where it was taking place. And if you remember in chapters 13 and 14, Jesus is in an upper room having this conversation. Some people believe that he continued the conversation all the way through this point that we're at today. I tend to believe that the last verse of chapter 14, he said, come, let's leave this place. And some think they just got sidetracked and stayed there in the upper room. Maybe. I think they actually left. And they were walking down this path where Jesus would point out things to them and continue the conversation as they make their way toward the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is going to pray in the very next chapter. And one of the things that you do when you're kind of walking down Mount Zion, you're walking down toward the Garden of Gethsemane, it hits this valley, and on the valley is where the way that then you would go back up to the temple. And that would be where Judas would have left that night. He would have went to go get with the authorities and bring them to come arrest Jesus. And so I got this picture this week of thinking that they're walking down, he's having this conversation with his disciples, and as he's getting near, he knows his time is short, and he's got to end this conversation because up on the other side of the valley, he very well could have seen the torches of Judas and the religious leaders and the Romans, and knowing that they were coming down that side of the valley to meet him in the garden, and saying these very last words, and knowing that just in a moment, he's going to be stricken, and when he is, the sheep will scatter what it must have been in his heart. What he was trying to do is he was trying to prepare them so that their faith would not fail. We've got someone else at the door too, by the way. Thanks, Josh. Um, earlier in the conversation, at the start of chapter 16, we get an idea about why he was telling them these things. He says this in 16.1, all this I've told you, told you so you will not fall away. And again, he says, I've told you this so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. He's trying to tell them, like a good leader, like a good spiritual leader, to, to expect these tough times to come, that things are going to happen, and I don't want you to be surprised by them. I want you to expect them. And my purpose in telling them is literally so your faith will grow, so your faith won't fall away. I'm telling these things in advance so that you will believe and be able to hold on even when you go through a tough time. I was thinking uh, this this week about what that's like, what it would be like, and I thought about doctors. Like a good doctor is a doctor that tells you exactly what to expect, right? They, they will tell you, like, Here's what's going to happen, and here's what's going to happen, and this may, wait, not, might be go this way, it might go this way, this is how you're going to feel. And I was uh, brought to memory a conversation that I had with little Oliver Holler, just sitting right over there a couple months ago. If y'all don't know Blake and Joe's son, Oliver, one of the cutest kids in Midtown Kids, uh, just had surgery a couple months ago, pretty serious surgery with uh, problems related to his kidney and to his bladder. And I remember just sitting down with Oliver, and so they were kind of doing worship practice, and Oliver and I had a little moment, and I said, hey, what... 
I've been praying for you, man. How are you feeling? And, he's, and then he just went on to tell me everything that they were going to do. <laughs> like, just, just so articulate. They're going to do this. They're going to do this. They're going to do this. And then I'm going to be in the hospital this long. And this is going to happen. I'm like, dang. I said, you've got good doctors. More so, you've got great parents. Because when you're going through a hard time, you know you've got something ahead that's going to be rough. You want to tell them what to expect. In a very real way, that's what Jesus is doing. He's, he's giving them a plan about what they should expect. I don't know how uh, it happens today, but many Christians have come to believe that if they follow Jesus, that everything's just going to be great for them. They seem to attach like a false promise that things are always going to be good, or there's even a whole movement, you might call it, within Christianity that's been come to known as the health and wealth gospel, a slightly misguided stream of movement that promises health and wealth to everyone who comes to faith. But Jesus doesn't promise that. He can give it. He can heal but he doesn't promise that. In fact, in this passage specifically, he's promising that they're gonna be persecuted, they're gonna get scattered, they're gonna have a crisis of their faith. Back when I did campus ministry at UT, there was a number of students who actually got really involved in kind of a health, wealth kind of movement. And it was, became really divisive because we had this campus house of prayer where we had people from all different parts of the Christian community, all different denominations and stuff sharing this space. And there was one, one guy that was part of the movement who absolutely, who, he just had a mental breakdown and the professors had to call the police on him because he, he thought that he was Jesus. It was really disturbing. And then there was a whole group of people that were like saying on one side, like, no, you guys just don't have enough faith. You need to have enough faith and pray for him and you can heal him. And then there's the other side saying, you guys got him into spiritual stuff and he was actually demon possessed because of what you guys did. And huge controversy on campus that all the pastors had to come together about because of this issue of health and wealth. And so that was all I wouldn't call it a crisis of faith, but for me, I felt like that year, I said, I've got to figure out what I believe about this, about healing and about suffering. And so that summer, I actually met with about 10, 15 pastors just to sit down for long interviews with them, just to tell them how they've experienced this and what it's looked like in their life and how they've made it through crises of faith. In fact, one of my favorite conversations I had was with Keith Atkinson, the former uh, pastor here at Red River in this building, and uh, because he was a great man of faith and he lost his wife, his first wife, to cancer. The people were praying, and to sit there with Keith and go with someone who's been through that, had his faith severely tested, yet stay faithful was just so meaningful to me. I think of the past, my pastor at that time was a guy named Gino Hildebrandt. When I sat down and interviewed him to ask him his experiences and what he thinks, he says, here's what I do, Justin. He says, one of the things I always do when it comes to healing, I, and people wanna talk to me about healing, I wanna ask him first, tell me your theology of suffering. What's your theology of suffering? It made me think, like, I don't know if I have that very developed. Well, going back to my sad days of uh, singleness, uh, one of the things that I did was I saw a counselor, and I tried to just really wrestle with, could I really believe that God was good, even though my life didn't seem like it was, it was going very good? And so I saw this guy for uh, a year and a half, like every single week, working through this. And one of the things that he gave me to uh, look through was this book that really changed my life called Disappointment with God and was super helpful at just exploring the, uh, the whole sub subject of suffering. In fact, it's pretty wild the way it starts out. So Philip Yancey is a really famous author, and apparently at uh, Wheaton College, there was a student who wrote a paper on the book of Job. It's, it's the book on suffering. And it was so good that the professor said, hey, like, you need to, get, you need to publish this. And so the professor sent it to Philip Yancey, this awesome author, and, and Yancey read it and said, this is incredible. Yes, we need to publish this. So they do it, and they get it all the way through publishing, yet when he calls him to say, hey, guess what? We're about to go to print. The student that wrote the book said, I don't want to print it. I don't believe any of it anymore. And he goes down to the whole list of things that had happened to him to where he had said that he actually just punted his faith. He doesn't believe in the book and he didn't want to print it. 
And so what this did is it sent Yancey on a journey just to do his own study on what is his theology of suffering. And so he went up to a mountains and he just read Genesis to Revelation to look at where God is in the midst of our pain or suffering and our crises of faith. And out came this incredible book. Part one is like the, the whole study of it from Genesis to Revelation. And then the second part is just a, an in-depth look at the book of Job. So good. And one of the things that I came away doing, that it sounds real simple, but the thing that happened for me is I had to learn that God was good even if life was not. And by the end of spending time with that counselor and reading this book, you know how sometimes you read a book and it's like, you felt like it was like pins just for you? It was like one of those moments for me. So it might not be for you. I still recommend reading it. But for me, it was like, I can't believe this has helped me believe again in the goodness of God because God is different from life. In fact, one of the stories that I like the most in here I wanted to read to you, one of the things he does in the last half of the book when he's uh, going through Job is he actually interviews tons of people that he would consider like modern day Job's, like people who've been some, through some of the most horrific stuff. And so he gets this guy that he thinks is this modern day Job, whose wife has cancer, is about to die, who on the way home from a treatment, this guy got in a wreck and it caused, uh, caused damage to his sight and his brain and his eyes. And this is what he does when he has this interview with this guy. He says, when I called Douglas to ask him for an interview, he suggested meeting over breakfast. And when we scheduled a time he came, I braced myself for a difficult morning. By then I had interviewed a dozen people and had heard a full range of disappointment with God. If anyone had the right to be angry at God, Douglas did. Just that week, his wife had gotten a dismaying report from the health hospital. There was another spot on her lung. And as our meal was being served, we caught up on the details of lives. Douglas, uh, uh, Douglas ate with great concentration and care. Thick glasses corrected some of his vision problems, but he had to work hard on focusing just to guide the fork into his mouth. I forced myself to look directly at him and he talked when he talked, trying to ignore the distraction of his wandering eye. At last, we finished the breakfast and I, uh, I motioned uh, to the waitress for more coffee I just, uh, <clears throat> and I described my book, Disappointment with God. Could you tell me about your own disappointment, I asked? Uh, what have you learned uh, that might help someone else going through something difficult? Douglas was silent for it seemed like a long time. He stroked his peppery gray beard and, grace, uh, and, and grazed off uh, beyond my right shoulder, gazed off beyond my right shoulder. I fleetingly wondered if he was having a, a mental moment. Finally, he said, to tell you the truth, Philip, I don't feel any disappointment with God. I was startled at Doug Douglas' uh, searing honesty as, as always rejected easy formulas like turn your scars into stars or testimonies of religious, on religious television. I waited for him to explain. He said, the reason is, I learned first through my wife's illness and then especially through my accident not to confuse God with life. I'm no stoic. I'm upset about what happened to me, as anyone could be. I feel free to curse the unfairness of life and vent all my grief and anger, but I believe that God feels the same way about it. He's grieved. He's angry. I don't blame him for what happened. Douglas continued, I learned to see beyond the physical reality of this world to the spiritual reality. We tend to think that life should be fair because God is fair, but God is not life. And if I could confuse God with the physical reality of life by experiencing good health, for example, then I set myself up for crushing disappointment. God's existence, even love for me, does not depend on my good health. Frankly, I've had more time and opportunity to work in my relationship with God during my impairment than before. There was a deep irony in the scene. For months, I'd been absorbing in the failures of faith and having sought out stories of people disappointed with God. I'd chosen Douglas as my modern-day Job, and I expected to hear from him a bitter blast or protest. But the last thing I anticipated was a graduate course in faith. If we develop a relationship with God apart from our life and circumstances, said Douglas, 
then we may be able to hang on when the physical reality breaks down. We can learn to trust God despite the unfairness of life. Isn't that really the main point of Job? Powerful story, right? That, among other things, just made me believe again in the goodness of God, but my faith was severely tested. Yet God used the circumstances of that to hold on and continue in my faith. First thing I wanted you to get from this is that Jesus told them to expect hard things in, in crisis of faith. Now he's gonna tell them how they can actually get through it. The famous verse here, verse 33. I've told you these things so that, you, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Now remember, these are the last words of the entire discussion that they've had that night. Because again, chapter 17 is a prayer. The last words that he's speaking to them. He tells them, I've told you these things for this reason, so that in me you may have peace. Really? <laughs> this is what disciples gotta be thinking like, like you just confused the heck out of us like washing our feet and telling us to love one another. And then you told us one of us was gonna betray you. And then you said, uh, Peter was gonna deny you. And then we started having a conversation about how you were gonna go away to heaven to prepare a place for us. And so you weren't gonna be with us anymore, but you'd send a spirit that would be with us. And then we leave the room and we walk, start walking down toward the garden and you point out these vines and branches and talk to us about abiding in you and how we can actually abide in you and bear fruit. And the primary fruit would be that we would have love for one another. And then you tell us that you're going to leave us, that we're gonna face opposition, but we're gonna to have to face it without you because of the power of the Spirit's gonna be with us instead. Peace? <laughs> How? Well, it's just in a very simple, very, very simple prepositional phrase. In me. Can't miss it. He didn't say that they were gonna have peace in their circumstances. There's gonna be peace in me. In me is where you find peace because Jesus has overcome the world. He's contrasting those two things there. You can find peace in me, but in the world, you'll have trouble. In me, you can have peace. I've overcome the world. He did this, we talked about how this is a lot of, a lot of things are repeated throughout the sermon or through the uh, upper room discourse. And just a few chapters earlier in chapter 14, he said something very similar. He said, my peace I give you, but I do not give as the world gives. He's constantly contracting the, contrasting this peace that's out there that's of the world. That's not what I'm giving you. I'm giving you my peace. I'm giving you a grace that's gonna allow you to handle the tough times and continue to walk with me and stay in faith. So in this world, we're gonna have trouble. You might say, now that's the most true statement in the Bible. <laughs> okay. It takes no faith to believe that, God. I've, I've, I've experienced it. So Jesus is so honest with him. But he says, I have overcome the world. Now it's important to know that this word world here does not just mean like ball, like earth. <laughs> What Jesus is describing, and it's a theme throughout the whole uh, upper room discourse, uh, this idea of the world. We're gonna talk a lot about it even in his prayer. He's gonna pray a lot about their interaction with the world. But the world there does not just mean the earth. It means the spiritual forces of evil. It means the ways of the world, the ways of the world. That's not the peace that we get. Instead, what he says is he's gonna overcome that. He's gonna overcome the spiritual darkness. It's the evil system, the world, and the spiritual realm that's the ultimate source of all suffering and all crisis to begin with, all crisis of faith. The ultimate answer to why is there suffering in the world is because there's spiritual forces of evil in the world. They're at work. They're bringing deception. They're bringing sin to humanity through the free will of humans. That's the source of all evil is the world. It's the work of the devil through the world. That's why in this world, we're gonna face trouble. In this world, you will face trouble. We will experience tragedies disease, broken relationships, poverty, hunger, wars, terrorism, materialism, natural disasters, oppressive, oppressing, oppression, slavery, injustice, death, 
All of that's not of God. That's of the world. It's what the world and the brokenness and the sinfulness of the scheme of the enemy has brought into our world. And so Jesus recognizes it. He says, in this world, you're going to have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Take heart is a Greek word that's uh, tharseo. I think I've got a definition up here for you. Take heart, such a great phrase. It means to dare or to be bold, to trust in something or in someone, and then to be of good courage or to be cheerful, to be confident in. In fact, it's used seven different times in the New Testament, and each time it's used as a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not something just there. It's saying, no, take hold, take heart, be of courage. And six of the seven times, it's actually Jesus that says it. When he's, when he's healing the paralytic, remember the story when he heals, hears the paralytic, he says, take heart, your sins have been forgiven. When he heals the woman that has the issue of blood, he says, take heart because your faith has made you well. When he's walking on the water and the disciples are so concerned to see him walking on the water, they're freaking out. He says, take heart, it's I, don't be afraid. This is how we make it through crisis of faith. We have to take heart and look at Jesus and trust in him. Biblical scholar uh, Lawrence Richards writes it this way, trying to describe this word, Tharseo. When discouraged or frightened by what we face, take courage or take heart is a reminder that Christ, that in Christ, remember that phrase, in Christ, we can abandon negative attitudes and face with confident, optimistic attitude that disposes us to acts of faith. Take heart is the idea that you can take, look at Jesus, take heart in him and grow in faith even in the midst of your crisis of faith because he has overcome the world. I was enjoying, it sounds like a uh, irony, but I was enjoying this topic of suffering so much this week that I read a book that I read a long time ago and they've actually released a new edition. It's called God on Mute uh, by Pete Gregg. Can't recommend it enough. It was so good to read this week. And I just remember reading it because he was a, he was a, a prayer leader, real similar to the ministry that we had on campus back in my campus ministry days. He led something similar in the UK called the 24-7 Prayer Movement, just a great a gifted guy that leads prayer all over the world but started a 24-7 prayer movement there in the UK. And he's written many books on prayer, but this one he wrote on unanswered prayer because he tells a story of his wife who just has these epileptic seizures all the time and all the prayers that went into that, but it never went away that she continued to suffer. And so it sent him kind of like Yancey on a whole series, not specifically suffering, but for him specifically, what do we do with unanswered prayers? Highly recommend this book as well, God on Mute by Pete Gregg. One of the things that he says, though, is one of the arguments that he makes is that one of the things that happens during unanswered prayers is God can actually grow your faith in it. The thing that might actually tempt you to lose your faith actually grows your faith. And he argues that one of the things that God does as a good, loving father is as you mature in your faith, he's got to let you go through things because that's how you mature. And he tells a story that I wanted to read to you. Or words, not, not a story this time, but words. <clears throat> Martin Luther argued that God withdraws and fills a false silent in order to draw us into deeper relationship with him. That's only possible when we move beyond merely outward experiences and purely rational understanding. If Luther is right, then silence and, un and the unknowingness of God are essential in growing us in deeper relationship with God. The silence of God is intentional. It's one of his great disciplines. He puts on his children that we may share in his holiness. Such seasons are often described as the dark night of the soul a term popularized by the 16th century St. John of the Cross. In this time of dryness, he wrote, spiritual people undergo great trials. They believe that their spiritual blessings are a thing of the past and that God has abandoned them. 
This may sound like a crisis of faith, but John is quite clear that it is actually the exact reverse. It's a process of maturation. God is, as it were, removing the stabilizers off of our bikes. And he's, uh, as we grow towards spiritual maturity, every believer is granted seasons of unanswered prayer when God is silent and may even appear to be absent from the world. In such times, we may be sure that God is weaning us off of adult supervision, but that he's not abandoned us altogether. I love this next part. Psychologists say that healthy babies in their first 16 weeks don't have the capacity to believe in the object of a, of a, of a permanent thing if they can actually, uh, unless they can actually see it. If you hide a toy from them they, and they immediately uh, forget it because they don't believe that it actually exists if they can't see it. But as their brains develop, they reach the stage where they can, you can hide a toy from them and they will keep looking for it. They begin to understand that objects exist even if you don't see them. This is a sign of Christian maturity, writes Mickey Gumbel. When we continue to believe in God's love, even when we don't see it or feel it, as we believe it, as we believe in the sun, even though it's, when the sun is not shining, we continue to believe in God's love, even in times of darkness, when we don't feel his love. I love that. Kids grow, and part of the way that they mature is they begin to believe that they can see things, or that things are real, even if they can't see them. It's in our immaturity that we need to see them. Jesus gives us the grace that we can take heart and overcome the world, that we can actually see our faith strengthen and grow in the midst of our crisis of faith and come out of it even stronger with what I would call faithfulness, even more than faith, because we grow just to hold on and be faithful to Jesus. He's gonna tell them how, and the reason he tells them how is because he's overcome the world. That word overcoming uh, means constant prevailing. It means a prevailing victory. It's the idea of like a war, like I'm constantly prevailing in this war. I've overcome all of the world. Remember, the world is the spiritual forces of evil. Jesus has overcome it. Let me give you at least just three ways that Jesus has overcome. And these are, these are ways that the disciples probably didn't understand that night. But that was the last word that he left them with, you know? The last word he left them with. Take heart. I've overcome the world. And then he goes off to pray. And later, when they receive the Spirit, they reflect back on Jesus' words. They realize what he had done they realized what the cross was, what his resurrection was, and what it meant, and how he had overcome the world. And this is what they write about what happened in his overcoming. Colossians 2, for one example, and this is that he overcame our sin. When you're dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them at the cross. We were dead in our sins. We had a debt that we couldn't pay. Jesus paid that debt, and they began to understand that, and they realized what happened on the cross was that he crushed all of our sin, was taken upon him, and it could be taken away from us. And it was a spiritual battle that was taking place because what he did is he made a public spectacle of them by what he did on the cross. He took away our sin. He overcame our sin. Second, he overcame our death. Author of Hebrews would write it this way. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. See, Jesus had to come as a man and die as a man because only a man could pay the penalty for man's sin. His humanity, he entered into our world and entered into our suffering 
and suffered himself, tasted death himself, that we could have new life and be freed from the fear of death. We have need no longer fear it because Jesus has overcome death. And finally, he's overcome the world or he's overcome the devil. John, the very one that was recording this, the, the uh, upper room discourse that we're, we're talking through right now, the very guy that last words that he heard from Jesus before he was betrayed was, my peace I give you. In this world, you'll have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Years later, he would write this. The one that does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning since the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. You see, when Jesus explained to them and helped them connect the dots, when Jesus was resurrected and helped them connect the dots, when the Holy Spirit came upon them and they understood what took place that night, what Jesus had done for them, in his death and resurrection, they had a clear understanding of what Jesus meant when he said, take heart, I've overcome the world. We get it now. We get it. He's destroyed our sin. He's taken away death. He's destroyed the devil and his work in the world. They finally got it. Amazing. They got it to such a degree that the 11 guys that were with Jesus that night after Judas had left, that 10 of those 11 actually died for it. They did get scattered. But when all the pieces came together and they understood, they were so bold and courageous that they went out and actually died for their faith because they believed that Jesus had overcome the world. Amazing. That night, however, Jesus was right. He uttered those final words, and when they went to the garden to pray, Judas came down the other side of the hill. Jesus prayed, and that was the exchange. He was handed over, and Jesus was right because all the disciples scattered, and Peter did deny him, and they all went to their own places. But the question is, would they lose their faith? They didn't lose their faith, and I have an idea why. It's because of what Jesus does in John chapter 17. Because there it's where Jesus prays for him. Because when we are faithless, God is faithful. Jesus is faithful. Now look what he does when he goes away to pray. We're just gonna look at a few of the verses in John chapter 17. He's talking to the father now and he's talking to his father about these disciples. They're just about to scatter. He knows they're just about to scatter. He says, I'll remain in the world no longer, but they're still in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them. I kept them safe by the name that you gave me. None of them has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scripture would be fulfilled. See what he's doing? While his disciples are asleep, while his disciples are just about to scatter, Jesus is interceding for them and asking the Father to protect them. And what he means by protection, it's real clear there, it's protecting them from losing their, way, losing their faith. He said, I've told you these things so you will not fall away. And now he's going to the garden. He's gonna pray that they will not fall away, that he'll protect them. He's interceding, asking the father to be the one that keeps them. When he was in the world, he was able to do it, but he's going away. So he's asking the father, keep them. Put another way, in that very same night, the book of Luke actually records that when Jesus said to Peter, you're gonna deny me three times, Jesus also has said to him, Peter, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you, Peter. And when you return, strengthen your brothers. See, Jesus knew all the spiritual forces of evil at work and what was going to happen that night, but he's on his knees interceding and praying, asking God the Father to protect them and keep them in the faith. Amazing. And so when we are faithless, God is faithful. Jesus is our intercessor. He's the one that's keeping us in the faith. I've told you these things this morning, guys, so that in Jesus you may have peace.
in this world, you're going to have trouble. And you should expect crises of faith. But when they come, take heart. Like keep, keep your eyes on Jesus. Take heart. See your faith grow. Hold fast because Jesus has overcome the world. And when you find yourself at the very hardest place where it's hard for you to take heart, know this. Jesus has hold of you. He's interceding for you. How amazing. To quote from Romans, what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is it, the one that condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, was raised to life and is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall these troubles that we've talked about, hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness, danger, sword, that is as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered like sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are with Jesus, overcomers. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor present nor future nor any powers nor height or depth or anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. That's God's word for you. The apostle John was the one disciple that wasn't murdered for believing this. He was actually exiled to the island of Patmos where he actually received one more revelation from Jesus about what was really taking place in the spiritual realm and what was to come. And I wanna close by reading these words over you from the vision that he received. Revelation 12, nine through 11. The great dragon was hurled down. The ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and the angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of the brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your faithfulness to us. Please hold us close to you, protect us as Jesus prayed for us. Give us faith and endurance to hold you fast too, to take heart in times of trouble. We do believe that Jesus has overcome the world. Help us in our unbelief. Prepare our hearts for suffering and crisis of faith that are sure to come while we're in this world. And have mercy on any here who find themselves in that place right now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I'll ask our ushers to uh, distribute communion elements. And as they do, I wanted to pull up, I think we're going to have it on the screen here, uh, one of the scriptures that I read from Colossians chapter 2. And I want you guys to use this to be just what you meditate on as the elements are being distributed. Consider what happened on the cross and what Jesus has done for you. Just have a little silence. I think Isaiah will play a little behind me. But reflect on these scriptures as you receive the elements.